Okay, part two of our reaction to Phase 3 covers. No music before or after, as I was just trying to get these out the door. And adding music always adds to the work. Digital, mental, and temporal. Besides, I have no idea if we're ever going to do more of these React episodes. These two were already unplanned like the first one. Let's dive right in. Let's take a look at the one that came out not the most recently, because as you pointed out, we are already familiar with the Black Ronin cover because of our privileged positions as being keepers of, so to speak, the new century fan base at this point. You could call us the Guardians of the Windor, but yes, we're, not exactly. the Stone Spring, we're not the Stone Spring Maidens castless. <laughs> Considering our podcast is called Through the Windor, our assignment as being Guardians of the Windor is more than a little bit uh, symbolic, even if uh, we shouldn't. We're just the most prominent at this point. We're the loudest voices. I mm. look forward to a day to when we are not the only loudest voices, so to speak. Um, I don't know. I'm going to fight two for nails to hold on to this throne. Fair enough. <laughs> no. Please, please compete with us. We, like, we genuinely want you to come on, join the conversation, be even better at it than we are. Absolutely. I listened to all of the Castlevania podcast, which you were a contributor to, specifically for the Castlevania animated was the Netflix show? show yeah. uh, it's a show, yes. Yeah. I've only seen like about two seasons of it. I, I wasn't worried about being spoiled on any of the future stuff that you talked about for seasons three and four. Because I don't have as big an investment in Castlevania in general or in the traditional gothic vampire setting that Castle of the Moon very clearly seems to be invoking here. But I'm not completely unaware of it, particularly since I've seen a little bit of Castlevania. I've seen a little bit of the games that it's based upon. And I know something of the aesthetic just from other pieces of media that I've taken in and everything like that. Not to mention all of the work that Toby and I did discussing the gothic genre when we were discussing Let Them Go and Secret Rooms thus far. And I'm just going to be very curious to see what Alex actually does with this. Because it's mm. really meant to invoke a lot of these traditional images and characters that we would associate with that genre and that kind of world. But I don't have enough idea of what different kind of story Alex would tell in that setting. You and I talked a lot about the similarities between a Dracula-style character and Seth, one of the most significant antagonists of New Century. This would very clearly seem to be doing its own thing. Mm. And there's intriguing stuff to work with here, but I don't yet know what it intends to do with it. I am drinking this cover up every time I look at it. And as you mentioned, I was on the uh, Dynasties, uh, as we called it, the uh, Castlevania Netflix show that uh, Alex and Sharon recorded. And 
definitely have always had a soft spot for the aesthetic of this series. And as much as I am not necessarily someone who ever fully committed to the gothic setup or just sort of the lifestyle, as it were, I think I've always had a deep appreciation for all things classic and sort of more freeform gothic. And this is just really going for it. I think just from what like you see on it, just the image of the castle against the moon mm-hmm. is the book essentially literalizes the standard image of Castlevania, which is Castle Dracula set against a moon that's larger than should physically be possible. That is what Castlevania essentially is. Just like, what a terrible night for a curse. Better mm. get going while you just hear... This cover has like a bunch of elements that like look like it. The fellow on the left who looks a bit like Logan, and specifically um, Hugh Jackman's Logan, or Sabretooth. I, I'm undecided on which one he reminds me more of. Honestly, with the exception of the sideburns, he makes me think more of the, um, I forget what his first name was, but the uh, the Belmont present in Dynasties. Uh, Trevor. Trevor, yes, okay. Like, Trevor didn't have, mm. didn't have mutton chops like that, but in terms of his overall demeanor and the fact that he's carrying around this wicked spiked war hammer as opposed to a whip, that's the overall impression that I'm getting from this character over just the way he's sort of scowling at the camera and everything like that. I don't think any uh, New Century character will ever not say something humorous. I think even mm-hmm. the most sort of opposite on the spectrum characters will do something dryly funny. But I think that I would have a hard time imagining Trevor maintaining this sort of level of... Like, he absolutely will scowl and be a grumpy bastard, but he's this person who feels like he can only do that for so long before he has to kind of just make light of things every now and then, and this guy feels like he might be a bit more down to business than Trevor, because Trevor is a mess, like, Mm -hmm. when you first see him. Like, he is an absolute mess, and the way his hair goes, he is very much kind of just letting the hair and his, like, beard just kind of go wherever they end up being. And this guy, I think, is much more... Like, he seems much more groomed. Like, he has his hair tied up. The mutton chops feel like there's a consideration to this guy so i get the feeling that this person is quite stoic alternatively i had a new idea about the man's character that probably resulted from our final interview with the shaws as you'll hear in a couple of weeks one of the world building aspects of the new century multiverse is the idea that some of the characters we meet along the way are alternate universe versions of each other in particular, Dr. Shira is a cat version of James Penrose, and Captain Beatrix a reflection of Mortimer Wilson. After going on about how much we love Carl in these secret rooms in Arlington shows, I find myself wondering if our mutton-chopped hunter type might be in some way a mirror of Carl. Something I had not realized until recently is that Carl himself was influenced by Jane from Firefly. 
just obviously less problematic than the actor that played him. I don't know if Alex might have tried to give him new life in a new story, especially since until recently, Castle of the Moon wasn't even going to be a new century story. But Jane as a mercenary vampire hunter would make a certain amount of sense. The characters on the right I'm curious about, I think the one that I'm the most like unsure of, I imagine that they're both vampires, but mm. I also wonder what vampires in New Century even means, because you notice that they both have pointed ears. Mm -hmm. The fellow on the left has rounded ears. The only other instance that I can think of off the top of my head of a species in New Century with pointed ears is the Elaine. Mm -hmm. It's definitely true that pointed ears are usually the domain of either elves, the fae, and some lycanthropes. On the other hand, a vampire that has pointed ears is not out of the question. That idea goes all the way back to the original Bram Stoker's Dracula, and has been used in other pieces of media, including Count Orlok in Nosferatu, some of the older vampires in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and in fact also the vampires in Castlevania Dynasties. I'll put a link in the show notes to a compilation of instances, but in some ways, having a vampire without pointed ears would seem to be the exception rather than the rule. And I am just curious if there is something else that we haven't necessarily seen. My prediction would be that this is taking place in Europe, because you want a gothic story, just go to Europe. And that also is something that's a little further away from both the frontiers of the reunified states, but also from the Princess Thieves on Britannica, I think that this is going to be like very much the Transylvania traditional. Or it could, I don't know, do the Soma Cruise thing and this takes place in Japan. I don't know. Um, but I get that impression and I think that there is something to these characters where the pointed ears could very much just be the traditional vampire aesthetic. I think that the vampire, I think of most of all, with the uh, lady with the red hair and the Shinoa like back tattoo and backless dress is Carmilla, who we mm. talked about in the show, and it's this vampire with a history that almost predates Dracula, or does predate Dracula. I admit to not being as well versed on Carmilla's the character and the le the legacy as I ought to be, but this is kind of what maybe the solution that if we already had our Dracula in New Century, maybe the Dracula story, quote-unquote, is more a vampire story, but taking a different vampire as the focus. Honestly, when we're talking about characters that have a basis in the vampire mythology, the one that always comes to mind to me is Countess Bathory, which was not specifically a vampire, but was associated as being a cruel mistress who took baths in blood. But as far as the influences and aesthetic going on here with the cover, first of all, the presence of the seemingly small girl vampire definitely makes me think more of, particularly in the way that Alex and Sharon have been talking about it recently, the young girl character in Interview with the Vampire. Obviously, in that particular case, 
Claudia, as played by Kirsten Dunst, was white. But again, no reason not to ever shake up that theme. She's also dressed far more demurely, which I think is honestly probably more appropriate for a younger presenting character anyway, regardless of how old they actually are, what with being vampires and everything like that. I should also add that in retrospect, I'm not 100% certain on their gender identity anyway. I know the Shaws are in a bit of a non-binary kick, but even on top of that, the child character is a little androgynous, and what seems like a dress could just as well be a less gender-specific piece of clothing that we can't fully see because of the way the cover is cropped. The taller one with the red hair is... I'm pulling off of a, a number of different influences there. The hat and the jaunty ankle that she wears it feels very kind of Rose the Hat from Doctor Sleep. Um, mm. But the dress that she's wearing... Again, I, I don't know, I don't remember as much about of Carmela from the little bit of Castlevania that I did see, but the backless dress and the sort of slinky garment and everything like that, she's definitely putting on more of a seductive air than Rose the Hat ever did. But then again, Rose the Hat was also trying to lure in defenseless children and everything like that. So she's trying to be a different kind of. A different kind Enticing. of pricing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As far as the setting is concerned, Alex has gone on the record when he was talking about writing this, that he wasn't entirely sure whether this was going to be a new century story at all, whether he was just going to do a Dracula story that was set in its own setting and that he only came to it later where this was actually going to take place. So this could potentially be in its own separate sister world much the way mm. Omram and Rama and Kelador are or this could be one of those unusual moments where one of those separate worlds crosses over with Century and this could be taking place in Europe or Eastern Europe and this could in some way connect back to whatever was going on with Rasputin I suspect it's going to be it's more of its own encapsulated thing, but mm. there's no reason that it couldn't equally be one world crossing over with a diff with a part of century that we just haven't seen yet, or mm. it could be set in its own setting and its relationship to the rest of new century canon might not come might not even show up until much later down the road. It, it certainly could be something where, for the like most part of the book, you could be thinking like, how like how does this actually tie into New Century? And mm -hmm. then the penny drops at the end. On a separate note, and this is a big stretch here, part of me wonders if the connection may, in some way, be that open hatch in the basement of Ravenwood at the end of Let Them Go. I've heard it said at least once that the hatch wasn't ever something that was going to be followed up upon, but just because that might have been the case once doesn't mean it stays that way. And Castle of the Moon is a return to a type of storytelling that Alex hasn't visited in a while. There's two other things that stand out to me in terms of this particular setup, mm. which is that the, the red-headed characters 
tattoo is very mm. striking. I don't necessarily know what all of the symbols mean there, but the fact that there is a what is referred to as the Eye of Horus, also called the Wajet Eye, made a part of it, makes me wonder if, first of all, is this tattoo meant to be symbolic? Which, given Alex, my natural tendency is to think of it, yes. But the Eye of Horus is supposed to be symbolic of healing and protection and also the revivification from death into life. So part of me wonders if this tattoo is symbolic of the not-quite-dead, not-quite-living nature of the vampire. Yeah. And also, if this symbol is... Like, we've already talked a little bit about the fact that Stone Spring Maidens uses the names of characters significant to our world's mythology as a part of their calendar. And therefore, does that mean that Autumn had some sort of connection to the old world of our Earth way back in the day, and that's why those names are similar? Or if it's just these names are meant to evoke something in us, the reader, and don't actually mean anything in the larger world building. But once again, I look at her tattoo and wonder to myself, is that going to be relevant in terms of this person being some version of a vampire, not necessarily the the traditional version that we are used to? Mm. Or does it mean that this is symbolic of the fact that this vampire race or creature came from another world that connected to ours at one point and that's where we get the eye of the Horus symbol from or did they get it from us somehow mm. like it could go either so, way so something that I did uh, spot while we were talking about this and I was just googling the eye of Horus so this is just from a very brief glance but it looks like that what we're looking at may not actually be the eye of horus oh really because well the eye of horus is the left eye Mm. the eye of ra is the right eye and Uh, it's the direction that it's going in now from what i'm looking at on just a very brief thing and more would need to be looked into with this Mm. The Eye of Horus slash Eye of Thoth is moon-related, whereas the Eye of Ra, curiously, is sun-related. Well, because Ra is the sun god. Mm. Which is curious for a character in Castle of the Moon. It could be that like, I'm looking at this incorrectly and that this is indeed meant to be the Eye of Horus, but something that uh, one thing says is that the Eye of Ra has protective powers come from instilling fear of violence. Mm-hmm. So more research would have to be done because like, I don't know if you can make accurate assessments of the nature of Egyptology or like hundreds or thousands of years of cultural like significance from a Google image. So I will mm-hmm. uh, abstain from making additional comments, but it would be curious. And I do wonder if... This is a collection of symbols that perhaps this is a vampire who has accumulated 
different touchstones of different cultures, different like feelings of reverence, or maybe even just things that mean something significant to her. And maybe some of these other symbols we're seeing come from different parts of the world, different moments in history that come together to give a sense of who this character is or what she values. In the interim, I've done some more research, as Toby suggested. Egyptian mythology is long and complex, thanks to a civilization that lasted over 3,000 years. Gods arise and fall in prominence, and sometimes also combine together. The Eye of Ra and the Eye of Horus are supposed to be different, but there was a time that the two gods combined into one, called Ra-Horakti. There's also separate myths associated with each eye. Horus lost an eye in combat with the crocodile god Set, and it was healed by Thoth, at which point it was named the Wajet Eye, and Horus gifted this eye to Osiris later, returning him to life. The Eye of Ra, on the other hand, was plucked out by Ra to become the goddess Sekhmet, who he unleashed on the Egyptian people that no longer respected him. This would not seem to be connected, except for the fact that Sekhmet had a thirst for blood, and was eventually only slaked by liquor that looked like blood, putting her to sleep. The connection between that and the vampire mythology is obvious. On top of that, the winged scarab, another symbol present in the tattoo, was also associated with both resurrection and royalty. The idea of royalty is possibly significant as well, we do call the most famous vampire Count Dracula. And body art like the tattoo did exist all the way back in Egyptian times. So whether the body art is merely symbolic or functional, as in a form of magic, there's definitely some importance to its existence on the cover and in the story. Something I don't remember from Castlevania specifically, does... That version of Dracula and vampires in general, do they have any fear of the sun in that world? It's honestly a difficult thing to tell, because I think that, depending on the game, it's variable. A bunch of the games do end with Dracula tending to like die just because he took several hundred crucifixes to the face and <laughs> like got whipped. But a lot of the time it will end with, like, the sun coming through the window and, like, turning him to stone and he'll crumble or something like that. And in the show, I believe a lot of the vampires do have, like, a fear of sunlight and they have mm -hmm. to protect themselves from it, mm -hmm. including this fantastic sequence I talked about where one vampire has something called daylight armor which mm -hmm. is just this suit right. of armor with like a glass a face mask yes i remember this. yeah yes yeah like a glass domed like beak thing mm -hmm. so in at least the show yes they do have this uh fear of the sun so who knows it could be that like this set of characters are actually in league with one another and work together like it could be that they're not in conflict and this is actually a crew of vampire hunters, perhaps, but mm -hmm. we'll have to see. The reason that I originally asked the question here about vampires from Castlevania and their vulnerability to the sun is at the time I was wondering if the Eye of Ra could also be protection from the sun. Ah, oh, 
genetic sunblock. But we should also remember that not all vampires are vulnerable to the sun in the same way. The original Count Dracula was only more mortal in sunlight, as his powers stopped working, and he needed to sleep in native soil in order to get those powers back. The sun itself did not kill him, as it has other vampires in media and pop culture. The sun being lethal originally came from the German film Nosferatu, mentioned earlier. But it also means that I get to play this clip from Eddie Izzard, who I will never tire of including. Not too many people know, but vampires can go out during the day. And people watching were going, yeah. And I was going, no, hold on! Absolutely not, no way. But they were, I mean, what, what is a low-powered vampire anyway? They say they can go out during the day, but they're kind of a low-powered vampire. What the hell is a low-powered vampire? It can't actually fly anymore. One that leaps out from people, ah ha ha! That's all I do. No, I'm daytime vampire. Go on, thank you. Ha ha ha! Sign of the cross to you too, mate. Or at least react. People going, officer, there's a nutter in the park. Also, it's a low-powered vampire. They're no bother this time of year. Be in bed by nightfall. There's a lot more that I could say about this, such as potentially the idea of, oh, it's a castle of the moon, and as you can see on the cover, the moon is fucking huge in the background <laughs> there, um, to, to, to quote Linkara in particular. But mm. one could wonder if the world that these particular people come from, if it's like one of those occasions where it's a world potentially of unending night or something like Ooh. that, yeah, or that. if the eponymous castle that they're talking about has some sort of power associated with night and that's why they call it the castle of the moon but more than anything else and something i didn't notice until we started talking about the cover today this cover has lens flare on it yes it does i was <laughs> it, uh, actually lens looking flare specifically being circled by the enormous sea in castle there and mm-hmm. i don't yet know what symbology that has like what what is casting lens flare here is are they are these people specifically posing for the cover and uh it's jj abrams behind the lens of like taking a photograph of them it feels too deliberate specifically to be a joke or anything like that but i'm not sure what symbology we're meant to be taking away from that uh, also, I don't know enough about what causes lens flare. Like, generally, that's supposedly supposed to be considered an accident if you if it occurs in professional photography. But I also know that it's it's meant to be a style in terms of when it's actually used in cinematography. But I don't know enough to know about what any of that actually means. So mm. all I can oh. do is point at it and say... Mm. Alex did that for some reason, or rather, Alex asked the artist to do that for some reason, and I don't know what it means yet. Well, I think that uh, light and the cover, these sort of titles actually sort of having enough substance that they actually will engage with, reflect, or even refract some of the light is something we have seen on some of the other covers. I was actually even looking at this today. Some of them completely distinct to what we're seeing others like the princess thieves sort of golden letters do kind of play with the light a little bit here i'm wondering if 
that like a whole idea of like light it has maybe like the shine of the moon or it could be that this is the sort of light that you use to fight back the shadow of this because something i noticed is that the titles have this white splotching which could be there to give the title of castle of the moon just texture but it could also be that the light from that lens flare is disintegrating or just burning some of those letters if those are like the red of the vampires or something mm-hmm. like that hmm. interesting hmm. possibilities well the i don't have too much time left since we were originally not supposed to be going on very long <laughs> but let's take a brief look at black ronin once again given the clear image of what is an eastern style dragon in the background since this is also supposed to be a new century book this feels like another potential a potential exploration of the crossing over of different worlds and yet at the same time i have to take into consideration century even though it looks a lot like our world isn't necessarily completely our world because we have now established that Century, based on the books that we've read so far, Century does in fact have its own orbs, as in Mm -hmm. Source of Magic, something that our world, at least as far as we know, does not have. So just because this is taking place in New Century doesn't necessarily mean that the the central world of Century doesn't have more uh, unusual things in it that people were just not aware of, such as the spirit dragons of China and Japan and everything like that. And that, therefore, it being in the background is like, not necessarily that it came from another crossover world and could have just been in century this entire time but i'm definitely interested in exploring it the text that uh alex introduced this cover with today uh just to date this recording of this episode is that alex says that he can't talk much about what it's about aside from telling us that it takes place in the colorado wilderness of century and will feature Yes, that took me by surprise. And will feature characters and creatures who have spilled into that America from at least one other world. Hmm. And here I have to put in a brief spoiler warning. Do not listen to the rest of this episode if you have not listened to or read Stonespring Maidens, as much of the rest of our conversation rests around a development in that story. It's all out now, so you can partake of it at your leisure. But I put the spoiler warning in, in case there's loyal listeners of ours that have not yet had the opportunity. Okay, here we go. It's a curious one, because I believe that this is Arlington. Mm. I'm pretty sure that this is Thomas, who, after the conclusion of uh, Stonespring Maidens, having kind of shed his, like, mantle of being white, whatever happens between now and the point this book comes out this is him trying to maybe wander around be this sort of wandering ronin and finding some sort of purpose or some sort of new life 
something about that that to me is curious is that he doesn't actually have the red that Thomas is associated with. He's wearing mostly green. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit of blue in the band that he uses to tie up some of his hair and also in the tip of pommel, the scabbard. Yeah, the tip of the scabbard, which is pertinent that the pommel of his like the hilt and the tip of the scabbard have elements of perhaps Sarah maybe alluding to the fact that sometimes it's good to sheath the sword. Mm. And also something that I think is really cool is that there is a the little visual design of cogs on the scabbard. Oh yeah. Not just on the scabbard, that little gold detailing, but on the hilt of the sword, it has cogs like not actual working cogs, but cog insignia like mm-hmm. in it. This is absolutely him having this new lease of life based on what Harry did for him. Mm-hmm. Although and I, that that's, feels like custom work, and what makes me wonder where it, he got that custom work from. Here I have to cut in because Toby's vocals started breaking up and I have to summarize his point. His suggestion was that maybe Harry made the custom sword and scabbard for him, either before or after the events of Stone Spring Maidens, that perhaps he was still lurking around and trying to protect his daughters. I doubt this, considering his very presence would be a threat should anyone learn of it, not to mention that while Harry is a gifted creator, she's not a swords maker. What I suspect more is that maybe this was a sword and scabbard Toshira Yagyu made for him long ago at his request. It's not a weapon that he could have used as white, as that would be a hint at his identity. But if he's far from the lands where anyone would know of Arlington or white, then it might be a totem he carries with him, a symbol and reminder of his past. Toby goes on to point out that the Ronin wears a white scarf around his face, reminiscent of the white scarves, and the scars on his body are a further hint at his potential identity as Thomas Arlington. Toby adds in general that the cover is very reminiscent of Breath of the Wild, what with the tall grasses and the dragon in the background. This is probably one of my favorite covers of New Century. I just think it works so well. Obviously, I know that part of the influence to creating this story as well as this cover was... Alex's interest in Ghost of Tsushima, which is a mm-hmm. game that I have not played, but that I've seen a lot of people talk about and seen some images from and everything like that. Uh, the fact that it takes place in Colorado, that actually makes a great deal mm-hmm. of sense in terms of if this is in fact Thomas. It, How the hell would he get to Japan? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it feels like that would mm-hmm. be far more problematic. The scarring, I wondered to myself, like, that could be a representation of his life before he escaped slavery. Alternatively, this could be damage suffered over his life as a soldier, or as a white, or even from the failed assassination attempt. Probably not the last two, given the armor, but you never know. The placement of the scars, however, look a lot like the results specifically from having one's back whipped. And as far as covering his face, while we already know that his face was particularly scarred 
after the failed assassination attempt and therefore covering his face may just be a way of like covering those scars in a way that uh, he doesn't with the mm. white mask anymore. One of the few things that I notice here now that mm -hmm. I'm doing the zooming in as well is that just underneath the handkerchief that he uses to cover his face, there's some odd mm -hmm. lines and an X that I'm not entirely sure what that's supposed to be. Yeah, that could be like sort of facial hair that's sort of just eking out, or that could be stitching. Mm. Yeah, it's hard to say. It it again, it feels very deliberate. It also looks more like lines being drawn rather than trying to look like natural hair or anything like that. But I'm not mm. entirely certain. Having had longer to think about it, this may just be one of those moments where zooming in makes you think too much. It's possible the artist was told that Arlington had neck damage as a result of assassin's bullets, and they were trying to depict that through stitching lines that look too deliberate when you look closely at it. Looking at some of the other aspects of this, the foot wrapping that he's got going on with the sandals, that might just be mm. like traditional foot protection as opposed to anything else. But it does look very distinct, much more like in keeping with the rest of the garment, uh, as opposed to wearing the more traditional boots that he'd be used to from mm. modern society and everything like that. Yeah, I wonder if uh, like he's taking a leaf out of Master Yagyu's um, book from, I discussed this when we were talking about Yagyu in Arlington, that he mm -hmm. wandered America like and was a citizen uh, of yeah. America. And so I wonder if that's what Thomas is doing now, like actually just sort of wandering around and trying to enact some good there because a lot of like who he was as white still endures here. Like he is still using a katana. He is still equipped with throwing knives mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he is covering part of his face with something white. There's elements that are there. And I think that's to show that like as much as Mr. White is gone, that was still a part of Thomas's past and will still influence his future the fact that all of this is set on a, a wheat field with such huge mountains in the background that brings into focus the fact that it takes place in the wilds of colorado which i don't know as well as some but obviously whenever you think of colorado you can't help but think of uh rocky mountain high national park and everything like that so there's definitely some relevant mountains going on there that one would associate with the background. Colorado also has several rivers that the image could be depicting, including the South Platte, Gunnison, the Arkansas and Colorado rivers, on top of the starting point for the most famous of them, the Rio Grande, which travels south into New Mexico. The wheat could honestly be anywhere, um, mm. in terms of the Midwest and everything like that. I don't have a sense of if there's a lot of farm territory in uh, Colorado that's associated with that, I tend to think of more of like the Dakotas or, mm. you know, specific states with a lot of open terrain. But here, obviously, we've got the mountains in the background. 
So that's an interesting additional bit of detail in terms of this is going to be the setting of where that takes place. But it makes me wonder, like, as far as this story being somehow a further exploration of Thomas's journey and the confronting of different creatures that have spilled into America... I I wonder to myself about Thomas's ability to be able to face them because the white armor was not just about concealing his identity to the rest of the world. It was a way to cover his weaknesses and to Mm. sort of like armor himself up in a way that even his coat wasn't able to do in Arlington but also the fact that his body was kind of badly damaged after the assassination attempt. And it feels like he would be less able to respond on a martial level without the white armor being able to like support him as sort of an exoskeleton and everything like that. So the idea of him going out into the world to actually fight monsters again is an intriguing idea, but it also just means that he would probably have to be far more careful about any physical confrontations that he got into because he is coming from a place of greater weakness rather than the buttressed strength that the Scorpion Arbor provided him mm-hmm. in all of his activities back in the reunified States of America. Mm. I mean, his vulnerabilities are, like, plain to see. They're, like, mm-hmm. exposed and bare, and, like, the cover manages to emphasize that. So I think that tracks. Those bandages on his arms may be just, like, part of, like, his outfit, or they might serve a practical function. But I think that they could very well be just indicative of the fact that Thomas is, with all the armor gone he is quite fragile now Mm. and fragile does not mean that he won't carve up a motherfucker like Mm. let me be clear (laughs) i just think that this is less the sort of tank that he built himself up to be as Mm -hmm. white and more like a glass cannon yeah yeah so I think we've uh, managed to actually cover all the things. And uh, yeah. there you go, Alex. We only took 10 minutes to talk about all of them. Yeah, exactly. Like, just like we said. Uh, well, um, it's it's additional content then, so I'm sure that somebody will. <laughs> this was an accidental episode, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, this I was an it. accidental episode. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of our shared speculation. But not quite yet to the end of the episode. Because something else came out in the week since we recorded, the mock-up for the Four Worlds Collide cover. It has yet to be finished by whatever artist Alex tasked with it, but it's already possible to see some of the details inherent in what he chose to show. If you've made it this far, then once more I'm going to put up another spoiler warning, because this time there's some stuff that's going to be revealed about Panther Soul, which many may not have read. This is your last warning, so jump out now, and we'll see you next week. For those brave souls that have stayed, this cover is fascinating. 
Alex said a while back that it was going to be centered around four magical orbs, but now we see the context for said orbs. And as a result, things stand out that even Toby and I missed. The four orbs are clearly meant to be centered around the worlds they come from. We have the Starlit Orb of Century, the Arcan Blade of Kelador, the Cloudbreaker of Rama, and an unknown green orb that I suspect comes from Autumn. This is already a mind-expanding revelation. I missed during my initial reading that the red stone of the Arkenblade was in fact an orb, and not, say, a gem, and that the Cloudbaker stone was also considered an orb. But now we also know that the technology-focused society of Autumn has its own magic orbs. This leads me to ask a number of questions. First of all, is the Green Orb of Autumn something of their old world left behind, and there's going to be scouring of those old ruins spoken of in Stone String Maidens to find it? Or is it somehow connected with the crystals that power their society now? Is the Green Orb the source of all those crystals? It certainly seems to be inset into an armored torso chassis that makes one think of, say, the Iron Man armor, and therefore also of the arc reactor that powered it. Second, it makes me wonder of the price the green orb requires the wielder to pay. The starlit orb takes natural sight. The arcan blade and the cloudbreaker both test worthiness in some fashion. And in the case of the cloudbreaker awakening the great tiger, it also costs life. And we know that magic always has a cost in New Century. Finally, it makes me wonder about the significance of some orbs over others. It could just be that the orbs depicted are the most recognizable orbs of each world to the reader, since we know worlds often have multiple orbs or multiple different kinds of magic in them. The Arkenblade and the Cloudbreaker are major artifacts, with legends surrounding them, and the rise and fall of great empires as well. The Starlit Orb was entirely unknown in Century, and yet its existence makes me wonder if its presence in that world is indicative of it being a hub world, and therefore having the key in it of traveling to other worlds. And as far as the Orb of Autumn, well, we'll have to see, won't we? But that's all from us for now. Join us next time as we finish our questioning of the Shaws on Stonespring Maidens on another trip through the wind door.